Our speaker for today is Joellen Zalman, who holds a PhD in Jewish history from Brandeis University, where two of my brothers went, and my sister-in-law. Her dissertation, completed in 2002, is a history of American uh, synagogue gift shops. This topic incorporates two of her areas of specialization, Jewish art and Jewish history. Professionally, Dr. Zalman has worked uh, with the Jewish community of of Jewish community material cultural collections at the Smithsonian Institute, the Skirball Museum, and the American Jewish Historical Society. She has taught classes on Jewish history, American religion, and religious art and architecture at San Diego State University, UCSD, and the Center for Jewish Culture. With that, thank you for coming and talking. Are we still in the sesquicentennial? We are, we are. We are still in the sesquicentennial celebration of um, our topic for today. Civil, uh, well, not the Jews in Civil War, but the Civil War. So thank you all for joining us today, and I hope to see you with, when Marvin Takir comes to town. Hi, everyone. All right, let's, you can hear me. Can you hear me now? Yes? Good? Okay. Are we ready to be engaged in the history of the great Civil War? Yes? It is an auspicious time, as Ari just said, to be engaged in the history of the Civil War because we are in the midst of a Civil War anniversary. The American Civil War was fought between 1861 and 1865. Therefore, we observe the sesquicentennial, the 150th anniversary of the Civil War from 2011 through 2015. Now, these kinds of commemorative anniversaries are busy times for historians, for filmmakers, and playwrights because anniversaries invite re-examination of the material. The Civil War sesquicentennial provides an opportunity for a new generation of scholars and artists to look at, in this case, the Civil War, and to offer fresh interpretations and ideas, new perspectives. And that's what I put, uh, I put a few of those new perspectives on this first slide for you. These are some of what I consider the highlights of the new scholarship about the Civil War. So for those of you who are looking for additional reading opportunities when you leave today, these are some of the titles that I recommend. So I know that you're thinking that age-old and yet timeless question right now, which is what does this mean for the Jews? It means that there's new energy and excitement around the history and meaning of the Civil War for American Jews. Ari, can you advance the slide, please? This energy and excitement has manifested itself in the production of a new documentary called Jewish Soldiers in Blue and Gray. Show of hands, has anyone seen this documentary about American Jews and the Civil War? Excellent. See, on one, one person in the audience. You guys have... You, you can, it was on PBS. It was on PBS, and um, you can watch PBS. It's occasionally um, re-aired. Um, but yes, so there's a new documentary, and there is the publication of a wonderful historical novel about American Jews and the Civil War called All Other Nights by Dara Horn. Um, and there are the appearance, we can also count the appearance of more than a million's worth of new scholarly articles and books about American Jews and the Civil War, some of which I brought with me today. You're welcome to peruse them when, um, when the lecture is over. And then I also put some of the titles up here for you. Not to be missed, not yet pictured up here, is Jonathan Sarna's forthcoming book on Lincoln and the Jews. That'll be published next year in 2015. Dr. Sarna is the preeminent scholar of, of um, the American Jewish experience, and he was also my teacher at Brandeis. 
Okay, so there's a lot of excitement. You get the idea. A lot of excitement, a lot of new scholarship on this topic. In our time together today, I want to share with you some of this energy and excitement, some of the new ideas and perspectives, as well as some of the remarkable primary source documents that have emerged from recent research about this lesser known chapter in American Jewish history. Now, I'm a big fan of the lesser known chapters in American Jewish history, and the Civil War is certainly one of those. It is outside the typical narrative of the American Jewish experience. Take a moment to think about this. What drives the story of American Jewish history? What are the great themes or ideas or moments that we all remember as part of the American Jewish experience? Immigration, I heard over here, absolutely. What else? Go ahead. The labor movement, Jews' involvement in the labor movement, absolutely. Sandy Koufax. Sandy Koufax. <laughs> we all probably know the story of Sandy Koufax. We, we laugh, but that's probably true. Supreme Court justices, Justice the remarkable story of American Jewish success, right? Film, success also in the film industry. I didn't hear that. Banking, absolutely, the success in the economic success of American Jews. Immigration, assimilation, social responsibility, like through the labor movement, for example, success. We all know something about these themes. We're all familiar with them. Many of us are dis you know, descended from immigrants to this country, right? We know about immigration. We understand something about Jewish life um, and, and it, how it deals with immigration, assimilation, social responsibility, and success. But I think we can all learn something important about American Jewish identity by looking outside this typical narrative, by exploring the untold stories, the lesser known stories in American Jewish life. And I think we can also learn something about the Civil War by looking at it through a different lens through a, the lens of the Jewish experience. By employing that lens, by examining the events of the Civil War through the lens of the Jewish experience today, we're gonna expand our knowledge of the 19th century American Jewish community and deepen our understanding of American history. So let's get started. I wanna start today with a prayer this prayer was written by Rabbi Maximilian Mickelbacher. Say that 10 times fast. Rabbi Maximilian Mickelbacher of Richmond, Virginia. And this prayer holds the distinction of being the most widely distributed Jewish Civil War prayer. It was carried by thousands of Jewish soldiers who fought for the Confederate States of America. And we know this because the prayer was frequently found on the bodies of fallen Jewish soldiers or among their possessions. And we also know this from Jewish veterans who remembered this prayer after the war. I'm gonna read for you an excerpt from this prayer. You can follow along on the screen. This once happy country is inflamed by the fury of war. A menacing enemy is arrayed against the rights, liberties, and freedom of this, our Confederacy. The ambition of this enemy has dissolved fraternal love and the hand of fraternity has been broken asunder by the hands of those who sit now in council and mediate our chastisement with the chastisement of scorpions. Our firesides are threatened. The people 
The foe is before us with the declared intention to desecrate our soil, to murder our people, and to deprive us of the glorious inheritance which was left to us by the immortal fathers of this once great republic. Here I stand now with many thousands of sons of the sunny south to face the foe, to drive him back, and to defend our natural rights. O Lord, God of Israel, be with me in this hot season of the contending strife. Protect and bless me with health and courage to bear cheerfully the hardships of war. This is a remarkable prayer. I like this prayer because it's surprising, and it's powerful, and I think it's an excellent introduction to the sense of identification that American Jews felt with their country, their region, and their religion. Let's start with religion. The soldiers who carried this prayer identified in some way with their Judaism, their faith, mattered to them. Now Judaism is going to mean different things to different soldiers, of course, but the soldiers who carried this prayer carried an affirmation of their faith a testament to the Jewish piece of their identity. We also see expressed in Rabbi Mickelbacher's prayer a sense of identification that Jewish soldiers felt with their region. There is a sense of ownership and camaraderie here when Mickelbacher writes of our confederacy and describes the Jewish soldier standing in the company of, quote, many thousands of the sons of the sunny south to face the foe, to drive him back, to defend our natural rights. Now, scholars estimate that there are some 175,000 Jews living in the United States in 1861, when the Civil War began. These Jews lived both in the north and the south, though they were not evenly divided between the two regions. Some 150,000 American Jews lived in the northern United States at the beginning of the Civil War. The largest areas of settlement for these northern Jews were New York, Philadelphia, and Cincinnati. Meanwhile, an estimated 25,000 American Jews lived in the southern states during the Civil War, and the largest Jewish communities in the south during this period were in Charleston, in Richmond, and in New Orleans. In all of these communities, Jews were characterized by their identification with their neighbors. Northern Jews identified with the North, and Southern Jews identified with the South. This sense of regional identification is reflected in the fact that an estimated 10,000 Jewish soldiers fought in the Civil War, 7,000 for the Union, and 3,000 for the Confederacy. All of these 10,000 Jewish soldiers worked for what was then one of the freest militaries in the world as far as Jews were concerned. You can see in Mickelbacher's prayer a strong sense of appreciation for and identification with America, a country that had afforded Jews unprecedented opportunity. Mickelbacher wrote, quote, the foe is before us with the declared intention to desecrate our soil, to murder our people, and to deprive us of the glorious inheritance which was left to us by the immortal fathers of this once great republic. Who are these immortal fathers? Is he talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? No. Washington, Jefferson, Adams. American Jews believed in the promise of America. American Jews were willing to fight for the promise of America. 
Now, most Jewish soldiers north and south were volunteers who enlisted as privates, and at least 50 of them rose through the ranks to become officers. Religion generally posed no barrier to military promotion. Religion generally posed no barrier to military promotion. I want to share with you some of the names and stories of these soldiers and volunteers so that you get a sense of the diversity of their jobs and ranks. Marcus Spiegel of Ohio achieved the rank of colonel in the Union Army before his death from battle wounds in 1864. Charles Edding of Baltimore trained at West Point before serving in the Union Army. Edward Rosewater was a member of the Telegraphers Corps of the Union Army. He worked in the War Department in Washington, D.C., where Lincoln would often come to his office to read dispatches from the troops. On January 1st, 1863, he was the telegraph operator who spread the word of the Emancipation Proclamation. Major Raphael Moses was the officer in charge of provisions and supplies for the state of Georgia. Judah Benjamin, a name many of you will recognize, served as Attorney General, then Secretary of War, then Secretary of State of the Confederacy. Eugenia Levy Phillips was a Confederate spy. Her sister Phoebe, Phoebe Yates Levy Pember, who got her own stamp in the United States, served as the head matron of the Confederate Chimborazo Military Hospital, then the largest military hospital in the world. The experiences that American Jews had as soldiers, their participation in the war effort at every level, and the sense of identification that they felt with their religion tells us something about the Jewish experience and it tells us something about American life and American history. America offered Jews the opportunity to enlist and fight as equal citizens, to rise through the ranks of the military, to serve their region and their country in a variety of ways, and this was an opportunity not to be taken for granted because it was not always the norm in other parts of the world. In comparison, consider, for example, the position of the Jews in the Russian army. In 1827, Tsar Nicholas I revised the conscription laws in Russia to state that Jewish boys could be drafted starting at the age of 12 for a period of service lasting no less than 31 years. Non-Jews in Russia were drafted at the age of 18 for a 25 year period of service. Jews were drafted younger so that they could spend six years in what was called preparatory training. This is where they learned Russian history and Christianity and were prohibited from practicing Judaism or speaking Yiddish. Once Russian boys were conscripted, their parents rarely ever saw them again. The conscripts either died in service or were converted. Either way, they were lost to their families. Some 40 to 50,000 Jewish men, mostly boys, were conscripted in this manner in Russia during Tsar Nicholas's reign. This conscription policy was the reality of military service for the Jews of Russia, the largest Jewish community in the world in the middle of the 19th century. This is just before the American Civil War, as Nicholas I died in 1855. But the American Civil War offers a different portrait of Jewish military service. America clearly was offering something different, something better for Jews. Knowing the situation in Russia helps to explain, in part, American Jewish patriotism and loyalty. So Rabbi Mickelbacher's prayer has given us a nice gateway, I think, into the Jewish experience during the Civil War, 
we move forward with a better sense of the demographics and a deeper understanding of the multi-layered identity of the American Jewish community in the 1860s. Rabbi Mickelbacher's prayer also gives us a sense of how faith could be a comfort to soldiers during the Civil War. I want to spend the rest of our time together today exploring how faith both sustained and also proved a stumbling block for Jewish soldiers at various times during this period. So we know that faith provided a sense of community for Jewish soldiers during the Civil War. We see this in accounts of Jewish soldiers observing Judaism's major annual holidays, including Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in the fall and Passover in the springtime. We actually possess two lengthy accounts, one from the Union and one from the Confederacy, concerning the observance of Passover by soldiers in the spring of 1862. You may have seen the uh, Union account because it is retold in this children's book that we have pictured up here on the slide called Private Joel and the Sewell Mountain Seder. It's a great book. It's based on a letter that a Jewish soldier by the name of J.A. Joel wrote to the Jewish messenger newspaper about a Seder he participated in with 20 other Jewish soldiers in West Virginia in 1862. I want to share with you an excerpt from Joel's description of that Passover Seder in 1862 because it's really quite extraordinary. So this is Joel writing about the experience. Being apprised of the approaching feast of Passover, 20 of my comrades and co-religionists belonging to my regiment united in a request to our commanding officer for relief from duty in order that we might keep the holy, the holy days, which he readily acceded to. Our next business was to find some suitable person to proceed to Cincinnati, Ohio to buy us matzah. Our sutler being a co-religionist and going home to that city readily undertook to send them. A sutler is a merchant who sells goods to the army. We were anxiously awaiting to receive our matzahs and about the middle of the morning of the eve of Passover, a supply train arrived in camp and to our delight, seven barrels of matzah. On opening them, we were surprised and pleased to find that our thoughtful sutler had enclosed two Haggadahs and prayer books. We were now able to keep the Seder nights if we could only obtain the other requisites for that occasion. We held a consultation and decided to send parties to forage in the country while a party stayed behind to build a log hut for the services. About the middle of the afternoon, the foragers arrived, having been quite successful. We obtained two kegs of cider, a lamb, several chickens, and some eggs. Horseradish or parsley we could not obtain, but in lieu we found a weed whose bitterness, I apprehend, exceeded anything our forefathers enjoyed. <laughs> we were still in a great quandary. We were like the man who drew the elephant in the lottery. We had the lamb, but did not know what part was to represent it at the table. But Yankee ingenuity prevailed, and it was decided to cook the whole and put it on the table, and then we could dine off it and be sure we had the right part. The necessaries for chorosis we could not obtain, so we got the brick, which, rather hard to digest, reminded us by looking at it for what purpose it was intended. At dark, we had all prepared, and we were ready to commence the service. The ceremonies were passing off very nicely until we arrived at the part where the bitter herb was to be taken. We all had a large portion of the herb ready to eat. At the moment I said the blessing, each ate his portion when horrors what a scene ensued in our little congregation. It is impossible for my pen to describe. The herb was very bitter and very fiery like a cayenne pepper and excited our thirst to such a degree 
that we forgot the law authoring, uh, authorizing us to drink only four cups, and the consequence was that we drank up all the cider. Those that drank the more freely became excited, and one thought he was Moses, another Aaron, one had the audacity to call himself Pharaoh. The consequence was a skirmish. Nobody was hurt. Only Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh had to be carried to the camp. <laughs> this slight incident did not take away our appetite, and after doing justice to our lamb, chickens, and eggs, we resumed the second portion of the service without anything occurring worthy of note. There in the wild woods of West Virginia, away from home and friends, we consecrated and offered up to the ever-loving God of Israel our prayers and sacrifice. That's good stuff, right? Joel's description reminds us of the humanity of these soldiers. They're not just names and ranks, but people, Jews, coming together as a community to celebrate Passover, using the resources at their disposal to make a meaningful, and in their case, I think, a pretty unforgettable Seder. Now, Joel's account also tells us that there was, in 1862, in the Union, a tolerance among the command for Jewish observance. Tolerance on this matter varied according to time and place. Rabbi Mickelbacher wrote to General Robert E. Lee of the Confederacy, for example, requesting that Jewish soldiers be permitted to leave the front lines in order to celebrate the high holidays in Richmond in 1861. Lee responded that he wished he could grant such a request, but leave at that time would jeopardize the cause. A year later, conditions had changed. Private Louis Leon wrote in his journal in September 19, 1862, this morning they read an order from our father, Robert E. Lee, in which he gave furlough into Richmond for all Israelites in honor of the Jewish New Year. Watheim, Oppenheim, Normans, Katz, Cohen, and myself all worshiped. Lee's decision seems to be reasonable here. He allowed furlough when he believed it wouldn't damage the outcome of the war. The fact that commanders in the field, as a rule, respected the faith traditions of the soldiers who fought for them, including Jews, reminds us that American Jews weren't segregated into special companies, they weren't required to endure special training, and their religion was not generally an impediment to promotion. So we know that some Jews recognized their faith by carrying prayers with them, Others sought to make a community with their fellow Jewish soldiers for holiday observance. And we even have some accounts, although they are few and far between, of observant Jewish soldiers in North and South attempting to uphold the laws of Kashrut. In all of these diverse ways, Jewish soldiers were sustained by their faith. But their faith, their Judaism, could also sometimes be a stumbling block for Jewish soldiers. In fact, there are two extraordinary Civil War episodes that impacted Jewish soldiers as Jews and ultimately tested their faith, not in Judaism, but in America. The first was the battle to amend the Union's military chaplaincy law, and the second was the battle with General Grant's orders number 11. I want to speak briefly about each of these battles. I can advance two slides, please. There we go. Even though the religious rights for all Americans were guaranteed in the Bill of Rights, only Protestant ministers were permitted to serve as military chaplains before the Civil War. Then at the beginning of the Civil War, in July 1861, Congress passed a law, and listen carefully to this, they passed a law permitting, quote, any 
regularly ordained minister of some Christian denomination to become a chaplain. You see the problem there, right? That meant that Protestant ministers and Catholic priests could become chaplains, but rabbis could not. Before the ink was dry on this new law, it was tested by the 65th Regiment of the 5th Pennsylvania Cavalry. This um, regiment was commanded by Colonel Max Friedman. He's mentioned on the broadside that's pictured on the slide up there. Max Friedman was Jewish, and this regiment contained a large number of Jewish soldiers. This regiment, the 65th, elected Michael Allen, a Philadelphia Hebrew teacher and businessman, to serve as their chaplain. Now, in all likelihood, the 65th Regiment acted in ignorance rather than in defiance of this new law about chaplaincy. Although not a rabbi, their new chaplain, Allen, had studied for the rabbinate before changing careers to become a liquor salesman. <laughs> he proved a popular chaplain with Jews and non-Jews alike, transcribing letters for illiterate soldiers, teaching English to newly immigrated volunteers, and offering non-denominational services. But Allen's tenure as chaplain came to an abrupt end in September 1861, when a YMCA volunteer visited the 65th Regiment's camp near Washington, DC, and rushed out with the news that a Jewish chaplain and an unordained one at that, was serving in, quote, the army of the Lord. The ensuing frenzy of protest prompted the assistant um, adjutant general of the army, George Ruggles, to issue a warning that, quote, any person mustered into service as a chaplain who is not a regularly ordained clergyman of a Christian denomination will be at once discharged without pay or allowance. So after hearing this, Allen immediately resigned his commission um, using the excuse of poor health rather than suffer the dishonor of dismissal from the service. Embarrassed and enraged, the 65th Regiment decided to test the chaplaincy law, and they elected a replacement pictured up there on the slide, Rabbi Dr. Arnold Fischel. Rabbi Fischel was a native of Holland, but more importantly, he was the rabbi of New York Sheriff Israel Synagogue, the oldest Jewish congregation in America and arguably the most prominent synagogue um, during that period or still among the most prominent in New York City. So in choosing Fischel, who was a scholar and an ordained rabbi, the officers wanted to make it absolutely clear that if the War Department rejected his application, it was not because he lacked the proper credentials, but because he was Jewish. As expected, the War Department denied Fischel's request for a commission. Fischel and his supporters immediately began a campaign to lobby Congress to change the law. Fortunately, many citizens, Jews and non-Jews, saw the chaplaincy law as unconstitutional and offered their enthusiastic support. Throughout the North, entire towns, even those with very few Jewish citizens, sent petitions to Washington regarding this matter. One of these petitions had 700 signatories from Baltimore. One was signed by 37 members of the New York legislature. One was for, from Bangor, Maine signed by 200 people, only three of whom were Jewish, and others were from really small towns where Jewish populations were non-existent. These petitions arrive at the White House and Rabbi Fischel himself soon followed. 
Rabbi Dr. Fischel traveled from New York to Washington, D.C., aiming for a meeting with no less than the president himself to discuss this chaplaincy law. Fischel arrived at the White House on the morning of December 11, 1861, prepared to act as a one-man lobby for the constitutional rights of American Jews. One of Abraham Lincoln's personal secretaries greeted Fischel and told him that he had virtually no chance of a meeting. But the rabbi was persistent. He took his place among the hundreds of people hoping to see the president, some of whom had been waiting for three days. To Fischel's surprise, Lincoln immediately received him with marked courtesy. The rabbi, speaking as a representative of the American Jewish community, asked Lincoln to reconsider the discriminatory law forbidding his people to serve as chaplains. President Lincoln listened to Fischel's grievances and fully admitted the justice of his remarks, stressing that he, Lincoln, believed that the exclusion of Jewish chaplains must have been unintentional on the part of Congress. He added that it was first, the first time that this subject had been brought to his attention, and four days later on December 15th, he sent Fischel a letter promising that he would speak to Congress about amending the law. Now this whole exchange is extraordinary. Let's stop and think about it for a minute. When faced with prejudice, when faced with exclusion, what does this group of American Jewish soldiers do? What does this rabbi do? They fight it. They fight injustice in a very public way. Fischel goes to Washington to meet with no less than the president. This suggests a community that feels comfortable enough, secure enough to call out the US government when it is not keeping its promises. And what does Lincoln do? He meets with Rabbi Fischel. And in doing so, he acknowledges the voice of the American Jewish community. He listens to Fischel and he agrees that this chaplaincy law is an error. It is contrary to the principles of this country. You cannot imagine that something like this could happen for the Jews of Russia in the 19th century, right? Tsar Nicholas I was not taking meetings with delegates from the Jewish community. Jews in Russia were not even allowed in the capital city unless they had special permission from the government. But America, again, was different. America had promised Jews equality before the law, and American Jews stood up and made their voices heard when that promise was threatened. Now, Lincoln's support, while encouraging, only signified the beginning of the battle. Having convinced the president, Fischel now had to persuade Congress, and he began meeting with the appropriate committees and speaking privately with numerous legislators. Eventually, the majority in Congress um, came around to Fischel's point of view. Both the Senate and the House passed legislation um, amending the chaplaincy law on July 17, 1862. President Lincoln signed it into law, and now the new chaplaincy statute read, quote, no person shall be appointed to a chaplain in the United States Army who is not a regularly ordained minister of some religious denomination. Within two months, Rabbi Jacob Frankel of Philadelphia was commissioned as a hospital chaplain, thereby becoming the country's first official Jewish military chaplain. By the end of the war, two others were elected. Now this battle to amend the military chaplaincy law had implications for Jewish and American history. The amended law was a major political victory for the American Jewish community and it remains a landmark in the legal recognition of America's non-Christian faiths. 
In this case, American religious liberty was broadened by the demands of those who stood outside the American religious mainstream. Now, six months after this victory for American religious liberty, General Ulysses S. Grant dealt a decisive blow to the same ideal by expelling the Jews from the territory under his military control. On December 17, 1862, General Grant expelled the Jews, quote, as a class from the territory known as the Department of the Tennessee, which included parts of Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Mississippi. You can see the orders as issued by Grant um, on the next slide. Let's advance one more, along with a picture of Grant himself. Now, how many of you have heard of this order before? Okay, most of you have heard of it. For decades, General Grant's Orders Number 11 has been widely recognized by historians and journalists and Hebrew school teachers as the most anti-Semitic act ever promulgated by the American government. Orders Number 11 is in every American Jewish history book that covers the Civil War. It is featured in the recent documentary that I mentioned at the beginning of my talk, Jewish Soldiers in Blue and Gray, and it is the subject of Dark Sarna's, uh, Jonathan Sarna's recent book about this experience called When General Grant Expelled the Jews. Um, Sarna's book is interesting because it offers a new and sort of different take on the relationship between U.S. Grant and the Jews. Um, this is one of the new perspectives that I was talking about in my introduction today. Ulysses S. Grant is being rehabilitated in recent scholarship about the Civil War and Reconstruction. I want you to keep these efforts at rehabilitation in mind as I walk you through orders number 11, the motivation, the, the, motivation, the promulgation, and the aftermath. Do you think that Grant can be vindicated? We can talk about this in the Q&A afterwards if you like. So let's start with General Grant's motivation for General Orders Number 11. So in order to understand General Orders Number 11, you need to know something about cotton. The immediate cause of the expulsion was the raging black market in southern cotton. Although enemies in the war, the North and South remained dependent on each other economically. Northern textile mills needed southern cotton. The Union Army itself used southern cotton in its tents and uniforms. The South, meanwhile, was desperate to trade its cotton for supplies manufactured in the North, like medicine and clothing and shoes and certain foods. Now, the Union military command, including Generals Grant and Sherman, preferred an outright ban on trade with the South. General Sherman famously said, we cannot carry on a war and trade at the same time. But President Lincoln disagreed. Lincoln insisted that trade follow the flag, and thus allowed limited trade in southern cotton in those areas captured by the North. Lincoln believed that improved economic conditions in captured areas would promote loyalty to the Union. In the spring of 1862, Union forces had moved into the Mississippi Valley, capturing Nashville, New Orleans, and Memphis, thus opening up those areas to trade. To control that trade, Lincoln insisted the Treasury Department and Army license it. As a commander in the Department of the Tennessee, Grant was charged with issuing trade license in his area, and everybody wanted one of these licenses. Every speculator, every peddler, every merchant, every soldier, 
because the potential for profit was huge. In 1862, a trader could buy a bale of southern cotton for $100 and resell it in the north for $500. But there were only a certain number of these permits, of these trade licenses to be had, and these permits limited the amount of cotton that one could purchase. So as cotton prices soared in the north, unlicensed traders bribed union officials to allow them to buy southern cotton without a permit. Smuggling cotton into the north without a license became a risky but a very lucrative business. So by the fall of 1862, Grant was pressured by his superiors to capture heavily defended Vicksburg. If he captured Vicksburg, he would have control of the entire Mississippi. The Union would have the control of the entire Mississippi River and cut the Confederacy in half. So Grant was frustrated because he saw a direct relationship between trade and victory. Because the black market in cotton continued and because of northern smugglers funneling money into the south, Grant faced a richer, more well-supplied Confederate army. To Grant, smugglers were traitors with a T who gave aid and comfort to the enemy and in that way prolonged the war. For this reason, Grant favored a total embargo on trade with the South, but instead he had to license it. And merchants seeking trade permits besieged his headquarters. When Grant's own father, Jesse Grant, appeared one day seeking a trade license for a group of Jewish merchants from Cincinnati, Grant's frustration boiled over. Grant saw Jews as central players in the legal and illegal cotton trade. He described the Israelites as, quote, an intolerable nuisance. Now, it is true that the some of the smugglers were Jews, and some of the legal licenses to trade in cotton were also held by Jews. But the majority of these traders, T-R-A-D-E-R-S, legal and illegal, were not Jewish. But in the emotional climate of the war zone, ancient prejudices flourished. The terms Jew and profiteer and speculator and trader were often employed interchangeably. And so in November 1862, convinced that the black market in cotton was organized, quote, mostly by Jews and other unprincipled traders, Grant ordered that no Jews are to be permitted to travel on the railroad southward into the Department of Tennessee from any point, nor were they to be granted any trade licenses. When illegal trading continued despite the travel ban, on December 17, 1862, Grant issued General Orders Number 11, which says, as you can see, quote, the Jews as a class violating every regulation of trade established by the Treasury Department are hereby expelled from Kentucky, Tennessee, and Mississippi within 24 hours. Grant expelled the Jews to stop the smuggling. Subordinates enforced the order at once in the areas surrounding Grant's headquarters in Holly Springs, Mississippi. Some Jewish traders had to trudge 40 miles on foot to evacuate the area. In Paducah, Kentucky, military officials gave the town's 30 Jewish families, all long-term residents, none of them speculators, and at least two of them Union Army veterans, 24 hours to leave. A group of Paducah's Jewish merchants, led by Caesar Caskell, a man named Caesar Caskell, dispatched a telegram to President Lincoln condemning Grant's um, order as a, quote, enormous outrage on all laws and humanity, the grossest violation of the Constitution and our rights as good citizens under it. 
Jewish leaders, when they learned of this, organized protest rallies in St. Louis, in Louisville, and in Cincinnati, and telegrams reached the White House from Jewish communities in Chicago and New York and Philadelphia. Cesar Caskell himself traveled to Washington. He arrived there on January 3rd, 1863. Two days later, the emancip uh, two days earlier, rather, the Emancipation Proclamation had gone into effect. Caskell conferred with the influential Jewish Republican Adolphus Solomons and then went to Cincinnati Congressman John Gurley, and Gurley took him directly to the White House where Lincoln received them promptly, studied Caskell's order of, um, study Caskell's copy of General Orders Number 11 and the specific order expelling Caskell from Paducah and commanded General Halleck to order Grant to revoke General Orders Number 11. Grant complied, revoking the order three days later. On January 6th, a delegation led by Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise of Cincinnati called on Lincoln to express its gratitude that Grant's order had been rescinded. Lincoln received this delegation cordially, expressed surprise that Grant had issued such a command, and stated his conviction that, quote, to condemn a class is, to say the least, to wrong the good with the bad. He drew no distinction between Jew and Gentile, the president said, and would allow no American to be wronged because of his religious affiliation. This is important background, I think, critical to understanding the issuance of the order. Also crucial to understanding General Orders Number 11 is consideration of its duration and its repeal. Grant issued the order on December 17th. Lincoln revoked the order on January 3rd. Grant complied on January 6th. That means the orders were actually in place for less than one month. During that month, we see two significant uh, developments in terms of American Jewish history. First, again, as with military chaplaincy, American Jews tenaciously and courageously fight for their rights. Caskell goes to Washington, D.C. Rabbi Wise and his delegation go to Washington, D.C. Jews speak out in telegrams and rallies. And how does the government react? Again, as with the Military Chaplaincy Act, we see forthright repudiation of anti-Semitism by Lincoln. We see the acceptance by the President and the Congress of the principle of Jewish equality. In conclusion, the implications of General Order Number 11 were profound. On the one hand, the episode reminded Jews that prejudices against them remained alive, even in America. On the other hand, the episode also empowered Jews with the knowledge that they could fight back against bigotry and win, even against a prominent general. After the Civil War, General Orders Number 11 became an issue in the presidential election of 1868, in which Grant stood as the Republican candidate. The Democrats were quick to remind the public about General Orders Number 11, and a passionate debate erupted among America's Jews between those who extolled Grant as a national, national hero and those who reviled him as a latter-day Haman, an enemy of the Jews. To complicate matters, Grant ran against Horatio Seymour, uh, former governor of New York, who denounced the Emancipation Proclamation and declared Reconstruction unconstitutional. Many American Jews disliked Grant, but they also felt uncomfortable with Seymour as an alternative. The issue thrust Jews for the first time in American history into the center of a political maelstrom. Jewish Republicans faced a difficult choice. Should they vote for a party they considered bad for the country just to avoid voting for a man who had been bad for the Jews? Never before had a Jewish issue like this played so prominent a role in any presidential campaign. 
Still later, during the eight years of Grant's presidency, because I think we all know he was elected, memories of General Orders Number 11 surfaced repeatedly. Eager to prove that he was above prejudice, Grant appointed more Jews to public office than any of his predecessors. Grant appointed some 50 American Jews to government posts, including jobs in foreign service, the post office, the federal courts, and most famously to the position of the governor of the Washington Territory, Edward Solomon, and superintendent of Indian Affairs, Herman Bendel. And in the name of human rights, he extended unprecedented support for the Jews of Russia and Romania. Time and again, partly as a result of his enlarged vision of what it meant to be an American, and partly in order to live down General Orders Number 11, Grant consciously worked to assist Jews and secure them equality. In reaching out to Jews, uh, General Grant sought to atone for General Orders Number 11 and to prove, as this nation's chief executive, that he was, as promised, without prejudice. Can we call him redeemed? I'll be curious to hear what you think. I think we can say this much for certain. The long view of U.S. Grant demonstrates how crucial it is for us to know the whole story, to always attempt to look at history in its larger context. So I hope that the ideas and the events that I've shared with you today from Rabbi Mickelbacher's prayer to Private J.A. Joel's Passover Seder experience from General Grant's Orders Number 11 to the battle over the military chaplaincy law have given you some context for understanding the experiences of American Jews during the Civil War, some sense of the exciting documents and interesting scholarly work to be read, and that when you leave here today, you go with malice toward none, with charity for all, and with an awareness that the Civil War sesquicentennial is an opportunity for remembrance and also for education. Thank you very much. I'm happy to take questions. There's no clock in here. Let me just, okay, yes. Do, we, do you have a mic for questions or shall I just repeat them? Okay. I haven't read it, but I'm speaking with a friend of mine who said that after the uh, war, Judah Benjamin was scapegoated in the South. Is that the question is about Judah Benjamin. Was he, in fact, scapegoated in the South after the war? Judah Benjamin is a really interesting figure. As I said, uh, Attorney General and Secretary of War, then Secretary of State of the Confederacy. In his role as Secretary of State, he was also the Spy Master General of the Confederacy. And what that meant is that he had a whole legion of spies who worked for him. Some of them went to Europe to try and secure loans, European loans for the US. Some of them went to Canada um, to, um, to get money and support there, and one of them was John Surratt. Um, he was one of Benjamin's spies who went to Canada and then who was most famously involved with the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Judah Benjamin was very concerned that Surratt's association with him would lead to Benjamin himself being captured and killed. So that after uh, the conclusion of the war, Benjamin dis uh, disguises himself as a French farmer, walks through the southern countryside, gets on a ship in Charleston, sails to, um, to Great Britain, lives the rest of his life there, has a second career as a very distinguished lawyer in Great Britain, um, and that's how his story ends. Yes? Well, I think the, the, the question is about slavery and, um, and 
what can I talk a little bit about the issue of Jews and slavery and, and Passover? Um, for, that's like a whole other lecture, right? Um, I'll say a couple things about it. First of all, the same way that Jews lived in the North and the South and you know, really affiliated with those regions, Jews had um, different feelings about slavery. There's not one Jewish opinion in America during the Civil War about slavery. There are lots of Jewish opinions. Um, Jews in the South were slave owners. They tended not to um, have plantations. They tended, Jewish, Southern Jews tended to be business people, so they had house slaves rather than plantation slaves, but they were in fact slave owners. Um, and they felt, Southern Jews felt a tremendous sense of identification with the South, um, and along with that, the policies of the South. So while I wish I could say to you, the Jews of the South did not believe in slavery, that is in fact untrue. Um, and one of the most, I think, um, thoughtful examinations of this idea comes in this historical novel. I recommend it to anyone who's interested in Jews and the Civil War. It's brilliant. Um, this is Dara Horn's book, All Other Nights, and it opens with a Passover Seder in New Orleans where the slaves are serving the Seder to a prominent Jewish family. So it brings up all these themes that you are, in fact, mentioning. Now, there's also a very interesting story to be told about Jews and slavery in the North. Jews, by and large, were not associated with the abolitionist movement in the North. Jews were not public abolitionists in the North. Do you know why? Because the abolitionist movement, go ahead, was associated with evangelical Christianity. You see this, the same thing with, with um, the franchise, with the vote. Um, women voting, the, the voting rights movement was also very closely associated with evangelical Christianity. And so Northern Jews felt very uncomfortable with the way that public abolitionism was expressed here in the United States. Um, so yeah, there's a, it's a rich story. There's a lot to say about it. Um, the person to read on it is Eli Faber, F-A-B-E-R. He has a great book on American Jews and the idea of slavery. Yes. Well, I do this grant. In 1957, in the Museum of Human Union College in Cincinnati, mm -hmm. I saw a letter written by Grant to a soldier's mother explaining in detail why he can't let the soldier off for the high holidays because the soldier was needed. I don't know if you ever saw that letter, but here was Grant writing in a big long letter explaining in detail why he can't let the soldier off for the high holidays. That's very interesting. I have not seen that letter, but it goes along with exactly what I said about Robert E. Lee, right? It depends on what was happening on the field at that moment, whether you could let your soldiers leave or not, right? Okay, in the back? Yes. Um, what does Grant say, if anything, about order number 11 and his own? So the question is, what does Grant say about General Orders Number Eleven in, in his own, in his in his biography, in his autobiography? Uh, he doesn't say anything. He he comes out after um, after the election of 1868. He says has a very brief statement in which he says, you know, that order, General Orders Number Eleven. I do not stand by that statement. Basically, is all he sort of ever says publicly about it. His wife, Julia Grant called it that obnoxious order in her own autobiography and spoke out about it and said, you know, he didn't believe it. He never spent the rest of his life trying to convince people that it, it was a decision that was incorrect. Um, but that's pretty much all he said about it. And it was, it's the sense of most scholars who work on Grant that he spent a lot of the rest of his life trying to you know, demonstrate publicly that that was not actually how he felt about the Jews and that he felt that was a more powerful statement than anything he could have written in a book. Yes? What was the highest rank uh, in the military of the Jews achieved in both armies? Oh, well, now you're going to test my military knowledge. There are lots of Jewish generals. What's higher than that? Major general? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. 
Yes, there were Jewish generals. Yes, over here in the, at the end of the row. There was one other anti-Semitic military battle <coughs> that came out of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And it was one regarding uh, Civil War established national cemeteries. <coughs> and the order was that grave markers at national cemeteries would be crosses. Mm -hmm. And it was, I believe, immediately after or during Grant's administration that it was agreed that Jewish soldiers would be buried under Star David. Yeah, that's, I don't know if you could all hear that. It was about um, the fight for religious libertarian in, in liberty in national cemeteries. The national cemeteries are come, and the idea of a national cemetery comes out of the Civil War. It's very interesting. The first slide that I put up there has an excellent, oh, we have it back up there again, right? This Republic of Suffering, really, really amazing book. Um, by, by Drew Gilpin Faust, which is about how the Civil War changed our understanding of death. Because you know this, the, the, the number of casualties in the Civil War is staggering. The accepted number for many years has been 620,000 soldiers died in the Civil War. I wanna, can you advance the slide almost to the very end for me, please, Aria? I wanna show you something about that because um, sometimes I don't, as, a, you know, as you can tell from my lecture, I'm right there. I'm very fond of context, of understanding numbers in context. So this might be too tiny for you, but the next um, largest number of casualties in an American war, in a war in which American soldiers fought, was World War II, where 405,000 American soldiers died. Um, and it goes down from there, but this is uh, the largest number of losses ever sustained in an American conflict. And, and I said that there's a lot of new scholarship all the time because of the sesquicentennial, because people have a renewed interest. Just in the past month, the New York Times had an article about a, new, a historian who's doing new work on these numbers, who thinks that this number is actually too low, and that the, the actual number is closer to 850,000. Um, so that's something to kind of keep an eye on, because this number has been accepted for a long time, and it is you know, on its own astonishing. But to consider that it might even be higher is, is, is remarkable. Yes? The question is, can we call Lincoln Jewish? I wish. Um, yes. No, it's, you know, as an American Jewish historian, people always ask me, was Columbus really Jewish? Because that's another one where you get a lot of connections with Columbus to Judaism, right? Um, no, I cannot, um, I cannot make any, you know, real historical connections between Lincoln and Judaism, but I can say that Lincoln was a great scholar of the Bible. And in fact, people used to say when Lincoln spoke, it sounded like his language was King James. Like he, when he spoke, it sounded like the Bible. Um, Jews certainly had a tremendous amount of love and respect for Abraham Lincoln. And when he was assassinated, um, many, many synagogues across America said Kaddish for him. And it's one of the first times that Kaddish was said for a non-Jew um, in, in American synagogues. Um, Lincoln is often compared by Jews to, to Moses because of his role in slavery, and Jews feel a great affinity to him, but no, I don't know of any actual connections between him and Judaism. He did very famously have a Jewish podiatrist, though, who came to the White House and worked for him a little bit as a spy. Okay, two more. One? Uh, the question was up a few minutes ago on the, the mortality. What was the population of the United States combined? Okay, so the total population in 1865 of the United States is 35... 35 million people. I'm doing that at the top of my head. I better check that number while I'm talking to you. The, the problem with population numbers um, from this period is that it's also a tremendous period of immigration to the United States. 
so that, uh, particularly from Central Europe, you have a lot of people coming to, um, 35 million, yeah, a lot of people coming to the United States every month all the time. So the number is hard to kind of keep a handle on. Um, but this is a huge it is remarkable, and, and, but m the other thing you have to know, and um, I'm not a mathematician, I'm a historian, right? So some large number <laughs> of these people who died, and these 620,000 died from disease following their injury, not from the injury itself, because the, the, you know, our understanding of medical treatment was certainly not advanced. We were just beginning to understand the relationship between hygiene and disease. So um, actually, I was, I was at Gettysburg this summer, which was really exciting. And I got to go to like a million ranger talks and I went to one about how, that was literally like a reenactment of how you would treat someone who got um, a wound on the battlefield, a bayonet wound. And watching that process was astonishing. I mean, doctors would go from one patient to the next without washing their hands. I mean, there was no understanding of how germs were spread. And, um, and so disease was a major contributing factor to, to the death toll in this war. Okay, way in the back, one more. Which was the only Jewish military cemetery in the world until Israeli independence. Uh, I think we should note that Rabbi Nickelbacher's prayer book, the only Hebrew in it was the Shema. It was all English, but we have to look at the classical reform Judaism in America at that time. The Union printed nothing for Jews, for Jewish soldiers. There's no corresponding uh, Union prayer for Jewish soldiers, that's correct. There was no corresponding is that there was never, the Confederates didn't have this issue with discrimination and chaplaincy. From the beginning of the um, Confederate states, they allowed um, a minister from any, any religious denomination to serve as a chaplain. It was only in the North where they had this, this issue with the religion of uh, the chaplains. So thank you, thank you very much.